Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. One of the songs we have in our music rotation here at Epiphany is a tune called There is a Fountain. And you probably remember this tune as much for its graphic Bible language as much as its tune or anything else, right? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. And it's all shocking imagery, but it's it's biblical imagery. It's it's good. It's theologically accurate. And um, this hymn was composed by a man named William Cooper. Now, William Cooper, you wouldn't know to look at his last name. His last name is spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced Cooper. Uh, William Cooper is is one of my faith heroes um, because he's somebody who had some very modern problems, but through the faith in the church community, he found healing in them in the 1700s. Um, William Cooper was a famous poet. Uh, He was very well regarded in his day. He's been quoted... Uh, by plenty of other people uh, in life. He was an anti-slavery activist in that sort of William Wilberforce era. And um, he was somebody who was an excellent poet and well-regarded, but he also suffered from severe mental illness. Um, William Cooper was a man who had his first bout of, they called it then the melancholy, we call it depression. Um, He had a bout of the melancholy uh, after he asked his uh, sweetheart uh, uh, he asked his father, the father of his sweetheart for her hand in marriage, and he said no. Um, so he wanted to marry a woman. The, the woman's father said no, and that was it. He couldn't do it. He didn't have permission, and so he went into a, a serious depression for a season. And then as he's coming out of that depression, he thinks, well, maybe what I should do is I should take a civil service exam and get a good government job. I have a good education. I can serve in the government, and that would be a good career for me. And he goes to take the civil service exam, but the pressures of, of passing this exam are so great that he falls into another serious depression, this time one that involved multiple suicide attempts. He was a severely depressed man. And after he was sort of recovered from the second bout of depression, he ended up meeting John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, and he had an evangelical conversion experience. And uh, he began to sort of plumb his faith, not just for writing poetry, but also to help him navigate life with severe depression. And I've always had an affinity for William Cooper because his problems, again, they seem so modern. We talk about depression nowadays and, and mental illness nowadays. And here's someone who was dealing with this, you know, 350 years ago. And when he died, he died at a good old age for the time, age 68, Uh, That was a good age in the time to die, and it wasn't the mental illness that got him. It was another illness. So by the grace of God, a good Christian support network, and with the help of the best medical care available in the time, uh, William Cooper lived a good life, and he gifted the church a number of beautiful hymns 
that we still know and love to this day, and yet he had a regular affliction with mental illness. And this gives me hope as someone who has my own bouts with mental illness, especially over the past year and a half, because again, we're in the middle of our sermon series, right? The the gospel in the age of COVID-19, the divine debrief, looking back over the past year and a half and asking, you know, what the heck happened and, and how do we understand it in light of God's grace to us? And uh, this week and next week, I'm going to speak about two particular themes around mental illness. I'm going to talk about depression and anxiety. And maybe uh, you're not someone in your community who's experienced this, but the odds are you have someone in your family. Like if it's not you, it's someone you know, someone who has bouts with depression, bouts with anxiety. And I think um, it's important that we address that in the church. Um, I was at my PCP getting a, a checkup maybe middle of last year in the middle of this pandemic. And I was asking about, um, you know, uh, how he was doing. He was doing okay. Um, but he said, I've got to tell you, Brian, I've been a doctor for 30 years. I have prescribed more antidepressant medication in the past calendar year than I have in all 30 years of, of, of my time as a doctor. And, and so even if it's the thing about mental illness, it tends to be something that's easy to gloss over with a good shower and nice clothes. Um, but it's sort of a silent thing and it can be hidden. And so I want to bring that out to the light today and have a conversation about the gospel and the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it means for depression. And I think if we go through it again, this may not be something that impacts you directly, although I have my 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 pastoral intuition says maybe a couple of folks here are going to walk away understanding their own mental health better after today, or perhaps they're going to understand the mental health of a loved one better. Um, but more than that, I think we, I want us to walk away feeling like God actually cares about our whole person, our, our physical bodies, our spiritual life, but also our mental health and our mental state, and that the gospel is actually a source of hope and healing for those who have mental illness. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. And one of the things I'm really grateful for um, today is that we actually have a, a, a textbook example of depression and what it looks like in the story of Elijah. Um, which we read through today. And you can read through Bible commentaries now, right? And they will all tell you almost uniformly that if you look at Elijah's story here, they all invite you to say, this is a character in the Bible who has all of the hallmarks of clinical depression. That if you look at what Elijah is going through, his behaviors and his attitudes, you can see somebody who has been you know, crushed on the wheels of life and he's having trouble dealing with it. I'd like us to go through this story today uh, together, learn a little bit more again about what depression could look like and how it can manifest itself, but also what God does to those, uh, for those who have a case of depression. And so let's go through this passage together. It begins like this. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not take your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Um, So here's the context. Why are Queen Queen Jezebel and King Ahab so mad? What is the context of this story? The chapter before this uh, is a remarkable chapter, 1 Kings 18, where um, one of the greatest sort of prophet showdowns of the Old Testament takes place. You may know the story, but uh, Elijah calls out and challenges the prophets of this pagan religion where they worship a god called Baal. Elijah, the prophet of God, calls these other folks out and says, let's put our gods to the test. Let's each build an altar, and we're going we're gonna to each build an altar, and whichever god comes down from heaven with fire and destroys with fire and lights the, their altar with fire first, that god is the real god. 
And Elijah says, let's do that. And the prophets of Baal say, okay. So they build their altars. And then long story short, God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, Elijah's God, fire comes down from heaven and it destroys and, and lights a fire that altar and consumes it. But then what happens is once this altar has been consumed, a crowd had gathered to watch this great sort of prophet challenge happen. And the 500 prophets representing Baal are all captured and slaughtered because everyone there says, okay, we know which God is real now. We're not dealing with this false prophet, you know, um, traveling medicine show that is the Baal religion. Uh, So you guys are false prophets. We're going to kill you. And this should, right, this should, if you are a worshiper of God, of the God of Israel, our God, this should be this great championship moment. It's like very clearly, like we know which God is the real God. Um, so then why does Elijah respond like this? Um, he leaves um, and he does this. He, he, he leaves the entire country together because King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are out for him. Um, if you know your Bible geography, what happens is Elijah, once he gets word that, that there's another bounty on his head, he flees south. That's where Beersheba is. He leaves his servant there and he wanders out into the wilderness and he collapses under a broom tree and he says, dear God, I'm ready to die. Thank you. And then he falls asleep. Now, that doesn't necessarily sound like the intuitive response you would have to this great victory, right? You have just witnessed God's actions in such a profound and powerful way. Why would you respond to that by leaving the country and wishing to die? And the reason is, Elijah thought, look at this beautiful textbook example of why our God is good and why your God is bad. Queen uh, Queen Jezebel, Queen Ahab, clearly you can change your minds and pick the God who's going to win. And they don't do it. They say, no, we're not. We're going to double down. We're going to come after you. Who cares if your God lit your fire? You killed all of our prophets. You are our enemy. We are not repenting. We are not changing our life. And Elijah says, that's it. So he collapses under this broom tree, exhausted. And we find out later on, what is, what is this great grievance? Elijah says to God later on in the passage, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah says, I'm no better than my fathers. I have tried so hard to get this nation to turn itself around. I've been following your will. I've been zealous for you and it's not working. I've been trying so, so hard. My entire ministry has been a flop. So I'm just going to go to sleep and hope I don't wake up under this broom tree. So you have someone here who's experiencing defeat. And all he wants to do is run away to go to sleep and just not wake up. He's indeed woken up, however, right? Um, He is not allowed to just, you know, wither away and die under this broom tree. He is indeed woken up and not of his own volition either because an angel of the Lord comes and wakes him up. And what does the angel do? He feeds him. He gives him some food and lets him sleep some more. Elijah rolls back over and sleeps again. And then after sleeping for a little bit, yet still, he then uh, gets another plate of food. And the angel says what? He says, your journey is not over. There's a long way to go and you need to eat. And so Elijah eats. And then Elijah makes a plan. He leaves Israel even further and he goes to Mount Horeb. If you know your Bible geography again, Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. 
It's the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments in the law. And so um, Elijah is so upset over the state of, of religious affairs in his country that he has to travel out of Israel all the way back down to the, the, the Mount Horeb because he says, well, I know God met somebody there and nobody in Israel feels like meeting with God right now. So I'm going to go to Mount Horeb and I'm going to meet with God because I think God will be there. And sure enough, when he arrives at this mountain, God comes to him and kindly and gently asks, Elijah, what are you doing here? And, and Elijah gives his complaint. He's like, my ministry has been completely unfruitful. I'm so exhausted. I'm so bad at this. My life is in danger. I might as well just sort of curl up and die. And, and God says, I'm going to come to you. And of course, there's the wind and the, and the lightning and the fire, right? And, the, and, the, and the, the earthquake. And, you know, we know God isn't any of those. But then the voice of God manifests itself in a low whisper. And Elijah puts on, uh, covers his face, and he knows God is present with him. He gets this beautiful gift of a theophany. And God asks him again and says, Elijah, what are you, what are you doing here? And Elijah again gives his great complaint. So how does God meet Elijah, right? Elijah is somebody who is exhibiting all of these classic symptoms of depression. This, I don't want to eat anymore. My appetite is gone. I'm so filled with exhaustion. I just want to lay down, and I, I, I'm kind of thinking life would be easier if I didn't wake back up again. What does God do? He feeds Elijah. He lets him sleep. The text says it takes about 40 days and 40 nights for him to travel. He gets out, and he takes a break, and he goes to Mount Horeb, and he meets with God, and God shows up to meet him in person. Not only does God do all of this, but God gives Elijah the next plan for his ministry. He says this, Elijah says, uh, God says to Elijah, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of uh, Ab Abel, I see I even, as your pastor, get stuck on the name sometimes. Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And later on he says, and I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. It's a lot of Bible names, but if you keep reading, you'll find out that these three people that Elijah is going to anoint to their positions are the three people who are going to end the reign of King Ahab. The Syrian who's going to come in and defeat uh, Ahab in a military conquest. Jehu, a rebel who will um, organize a rebellion and a coup and overthrow Ahab's descendant and Elisha, the prophet of God, who will be there to bless that every step of the way. So Elijah comes to God, and he feels spent and exhausted and defeated. He doesn't want to eat. He just wants to sort of curl up and go to sleep and not wake up. And God gives him food and rest. Um, God assures him that he is indeed with him, and then gives him a new plan to continue his ministry. And our reading ends uh, with Elijah getting up and going back and doing what the Lord has asked him to do. I think this is a, a remarkable Bible story because, again, we see the symptoms of depression in Elijah here. Um, these are all things where if you, you can talk to a doctor, you can look at you know, um, Mayo Clinic online, uh, you can see that these are all this, this exhaustion, this need for sleep, this loss of appetite. Uh, this, this, things are so bad, I would rather go to sleep and not wake up. That, these are all textbook examples of depression. 
And there's a lot of guilt that can surround that, right? Because if you are experiencing depression or you're in a family or a work environment, it can impact other people in a serious way. That's why I'm struck why in our reading from Psalm 6 today, King David, he, even him, seems to have this sense of depression over him, this gloom over him, right? David seems to be in the midst of a depressive episode, and he describes a situation where he is so put out by his grief that his couch is sopping wet with all of the tears he's been crying, and, and his soul and his bones are greatly troubled. And the psalm starts off not with sort of a, with, with, well, the psalm starts off with this request for mercy. What does David say? Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. It's a beautiful prayer, one that I know I've prayed plenty of times. Be gracious o me, to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. When the requirements of life are so much that that work and family and everything that you're supposed to be doing, all the balls you're juggling, you can't keep it together and things start to drop and then you feel guilty because these are good and godly things you should be doing, but you're so exhausted and you can't keep up. When King David gets to that place, he says, have mercy on me, O God. Don't add to my trouble by giving me discipline. I know I can't keep up with everything right now and I know things are falling apart. I just need mercy because I'm languishing. That's the story that we get from David this morning. It's a good prayer. Be merciful to me, O God, for I am languishing. So what does the gospel have to say? What is good news is there um, in the story of Elijah for us? And I have a couple of concluding thoughts that I want to share with you today. And the first is this. I would love for the church to think of depression in the same category as other illnesses that Jesus came to heal. uh, And that Jesus will one day heal and rid the world of. Jesus healed paralytics, he healed the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame. He healed people with blood diseases. And one of the things that we do as Christians, we just automatically sort of make the next leap and say, well, if Jesus is going to heal all of these things, then he'll also heal our friend's cancer. Or he'll also heal my family member who has COVID-19. Or he'll also heal, you know, these modern illnesses and ailments that we don't necessarily see in Scripture. We say, well, God will hear that too. And I wonder if we could consider that the God who heals, the God who loved and restored Elijah, could heal our depression as well. Can we give that courtesy, um, that theological courtesy as it was uh, to all of us in the church and outside the church? And so, of course, we we also, just like every other disease, we also seek the proper medical um, uh, attention for those maladies, right, in 2021, like William Cooper did in the 1700s. Right, the, and the medical care, uh, care for depression is talk therapy and also medicine. And so, yes, I can say it from the pulpit. Like, if you need to try some antidepressants, I've tried them over the past year and a half, right? Like, don't worry. They're, they're, they're okay things to try. There's not a biblical reason not to. And so that's my first, first thought that I offer to you today, that if God can tend to Elijah and his depression and treat it as the serious malady that it is, then let's follow suit for those around us. Second thing I want us to take away from today, and I think this is important, is that we need to remember that the gospel is what we call an objective truth and not a subjective truth. An objective truth is something that is true in all times, in all places, regardless of how we feel. And something that is subjective is something that is true based on how we're feeling today and how we experience it, right? And so uh, when we talk about the gospel... If we say uh, the gospel is you feel connected to the love of God and that you will feel warm fuzzies and you'll be happy all the time because God has made you happy 
And what God has done for you is, is and you can know that God loves you because you can feel his presence and you can feel happiness in your life. Um, what we do is we take um, depression and we multiply it because depression cuts us off from those things we normally enjoy. And therefore, the result is you are not only depressed, but you have a spiritual crisis on top of the depression because you can't feel God's love and you feel far and distant from him. And those are, of course, things we read in the Psalms all the time, natural things to feel as a Christian. But instead, if you talk about the gospel as an objective truth, something that is true regardless of circumstances, we actually have something good for people who are suffering. Uh, Because if the gospel is as true as the sun rising in the east and setting in the west, if the gospel is true like every action has an uh, an, um, even an opposite reaction or that an object in motion stays in motion until acted upon by another object, right? Newton's laws of of physics. Um, if, 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 If we're gonna talk about the gospel being as true as the law of gravity, which is when we drop the pen, it falls to the floor, then we actually have something to give people. Um, Because the objective Christian gospel can say to somebody who's dealing with depression, not Jesus is good and died and rose for him, so cheer up now. But we can say Jesus died and rose again for you, and this current state of affairs is not the final word. It's not the final word that there is something better coming, so hang on because God loves you and things will indeed get better. So that's the other thing I would like to say. That's the second thing, is we need to make sure our gospel is objective and true. Jesus died and rose again. He's coming back to fix the world and he's gonna forgive the sins of all the repentant. And that's true whether or not we believe it to be true in any particular given moment. It's the second thing I would say. And the third thing I would say is this, is part of the story is that God has and continue, uh, has done this and he'll continue to do this and will do this. He's going to continue to use those who suffer from depression and other mental illnesses for the benefit of the church. He's going to continue to do this work. Elijah's ministry was not over at the end of 1 Kings chapter 19. David's reign was not stalled when he was composing Psalm chapter 6. William Cooper, the great hymn writer, continued to write hymns in the midst of his depressive episodes. And as we read today in John chapter 11, not even the tears of death um, can keep Jesus' mighty hand from doing a good work. Um, Jesus weeps along with us, but then also says, okay, um, I'm going to keep working and do something about the matter at hand. I've shared from this play before, it was a couple of years ago, but I'd like to share it again because it's such a beautiful example, I think, a beautiful reflection on this particular truth. Um, The writer Thornton Wilder composed a play some years ago in the 1950s, I think, or 1960s, and it's called The Angel That Troubled the Waters. And this this writer is reflecting on the the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, and this is a thing we learn about, we learn about this in John chapter 5, that there's a pool in Jerusalem, you remember, and the the story goes that when this pool bubbled and swirled, it's normally still, but when it bubbled and swirled, that the story was that there was an angel who had come and blessed the water and gave it healing properties. And the first person into the pool would be healed of their malady. And so there was this big collection of people hanging out the pool of Bethesda, people who are invalids, uh, paralyzed, uh, people who were otherwise unable to work. And all they could do is sit there and wait for the angel to trouble the waters so that they might fall in and be healed. Um, Jesus, of course, comes and does a miraculous work here. Jesus is better than the Pool of Bethesda is the point of that story. Um, But this writer, Thornton Wilder, imagines that among the various uh, people, the invalids, the paralyzed, the immobile, people who are waiting to throw themselves into the pool, 
Jesus walks into the, oh, the, the Thornton Wilder imagines into the scene that a doctor arrives. And, and it's this great irony that a doctor arrives, and, and he comes into this pool, and the, the doctor is completely on the outside healthy. He can walk. He can talk. And, and all the other people there who are lame and paralyzed are giving him the stink eye, like, what are you doing here, doctor? Like, like you don't deserve to be here. You, your, your body works. Ours doesn't. But what they don't know is the doctor is suffering from depression and a deep darkness. And the doctor looks at the pool and says, you know, if I could just get the healing from my depression, if I could get the healing from my mental illness, if I could throw myself into this water, then I would be such a better doctor and I could care for so many more people. And so if I could just be in this pool, if I could be the one who is healed, then I would indeed uh, help other people even more. And so the doctor says, if the pool can cure all the lame people, it can cure my mental illness as well. And this is the play. And then what ends up happening is he comes close, an angel appears to him and says, draw back, physician. Draw back. These healing waters are not for you. And the physician pleads with the angel and he says, angel, no, you don't understand. If I could just be healed, and he gives him the justification. He says, if I could just be healed of my mental illness, I could heal so many more people. Just please deliver me from this darkness that's absolutely crushing me. And and they go back and forth for a little bit there. And the angel says, uh, finally, um, he, he shuts it down and he says, without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble in the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth, as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. Draw back. In love's service, says Thornton Wilder through his angel character, only wounded soldiers can serve. And given that our Lord was mortally wounded in his hands and his feet and on his head and in his side, on that hillside outside of Jerusalem, I'm inclined to agree with him. And so maybe this past year and a half has brought forward a depressive moment in your life. Maybe you have someone that you love who is working through their own depressive cycle. The gospel, friends, was made for such as these Uh, And so to you, my fellow wounded soldiers, I invite you to serve and to continue to serve in the name of love. And know that your mental and spiritual wounds are just as qualifying for service in love's army as anything else. And so trust that Jesus' death and resurrection means the darkness is not all there is or shall be. And look forward with me to a time when we shall see the light of God from whom there is no darkness at all. In Jesus' name, amen. Pennsylvania.